0: Good morning. You know there are a myriad things that we could lead off with today, but uh, I want to lead off with this. Where in the word are you today? Uh, if you were with us in the first hour, that you then you know that uh, those of us who are reading through the Gospel of Luke during the season of Advent on this fourth of December are in Luke chapter four. I encourage you to um, read. Read with us through the season of Advent. Where else in the Word are you today? Um, uh, I uh, attend worship at a church where we are spending time in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, and we are tilling the soil of that verse all throughout Advent, um, each week considering one of the all things that come with Christ. And so we, we spent this week focusing on forgiveness. I mean, God who has given us Christ, will he not also give us all things? Well, what are those all things? You know, every spiritual blessing under heaven um, comes to mind. Forgiveness, you know, leads the list. The love of God. I mean, I just, the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about all the things that come with Christ. You could dwell there for a while. Where in the word are you today? Today um and remember there's two ways to think about that so there's the way that i have just illuminated which is where in your reading and study of scripture are you today but there's also the conversation about where in the word are you in terms of christ who has invited us to abide in him so where in the one who is the word am i today am i abiding in christ am i actively submitting, cooperating with the Holy Spirit, who is at work within me, who very much desires to bring me into greater conformity with who Christ is, to the character of Christ. Am I I in Christ today? Am I abiding in Christ today in such a way that I am cooperating with the work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring me into greater conformity with who Christ is? And if not, then I'm resisting and I'm not submitting and I'm I'm like a horse with its own head. Right. Um, And so let me encourage you to consider the question, where in the word are you today in both of its uh, spirits? Like, right, the spirit of where in the word are you in terms of your scripture study and scripture reading? But where in the word are you in terms of Christ who has come and is coming again? Next up, Adam Holtz from Focus on the Family's Plugged In We're going to talk about some media news and some uh, reviews. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Adam Holtz from Focus on the Families Plugged In. You can find what we're talking about today at PluggedIn.com. Adam, welcome back.
2: Good morning, Carmen.
0: All right. So um, I have some media breaking news. It's probably not breaking news to you. It was media breaking news to me. Right. Warner Brothers is going to send its entire 2021 slate to HBO Max and theaters on the same day.
2: Yep. I have yeah, no idea no.
0: what that means, but people seem very, um, uh, very energized about it. Is this like a a threat to us ever returning to the, the theaters in the way that we used to? Because we will no longer have to wait. We can just use our home as a theater in the same way we would use the theater as a theater. Is that kind of what's going on here?
2: I'm going to go with definitely maybe as my final answer, <laughs> if you'll let me be so equivocating. Uh, you know. Here's the thing. Theaters right now are sitting on these movies that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make. A movie like Wonder Woman costs $200 million, and they're paying, I read somewhere, about a million dollars. It was either a week or a month in interest on the loans for that. So every week, every month that they don't release these movies, they're just the debt just piles up. They are desperate to figure out some way to monetize this investment. And because Warner Brothers uh, owns HBO, they're using that as an outlet and they're they're gambling. I read another article that said they're, they're making a billion-dollar bet on Wonder Woman that they can get enough people to subscribe to HBO Max to offset the losses that they will definitely take. I mean, right now, our theaters just closed down again. I don't even know where theaters are even open right now. Um, but Warner Brothers is desperate. What you're seeing here is a company that has to make money to survive but theaters have to make money to survive too and so anytime a major studio production house comes out and says hey we're going to change the status quo the theaters jump up and down and say what about us uh up in the past they have talked about the theatrical window which has always been a pretty hard and fast um three-month window Uh, now they're going to put things online simultaneously And theater owners are losing their minds. So it's a uh, it is a paradigm shift. It is a revolutionary, desperate move. And I don't know that we're going to know where it's going to shake out really until after the pandemic is mostly in our rearview mirror and theaters start to open up again. We'll have to see if people's habits have changed permanently. But for now, it's a big deal.
0: All right, listener Barb. is very uh, concerned about this headline, Barb. We're not saying that your theater is closing or that you can't watch Wonder Woman at the theater. I'm just going ahead and telling you that there will be right. other ways for other people to watch as well.
2: <laughs> Correct.
0: Okay. that. the, all the question
2: is, do people really want to subscribe to another streaming service? Because I think HBO has historically been, you know, that's where all the naughty stuff was. I mean, I grew up in the '80s, and man, your friends who had HBO. You know, and and I think there's still a little bit of a stigma with HBO is, you know, this is the mature outlet. And so I'm curious to see how many people are going to pony up uh, on this. And and the headlines a little misleading. They're not releasing all these movies simultaneously on the same day. No, on the day of whatever their release was going to be. Yeah, exactly.
0: All right. Well, I got to tell you that the list of films in here um, was intriguing to me. And so I will not read them, but we will review them as they come out. And let's move to reviews right now. Um, The one that was popping all over my social media is the one called Godmothered. And because, you know, God is in Godmothered, it seems like something we should review.
2: Right. Well, you know, Disney has been sort of gently um, deconstructing its entire mythology over the last, really over the last decade or so, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways. Um, And this is another one of those movies where they're Revisiting the idea of a fairy godmother, and it turns out there's a place where there's a basically a university for fairy godmothers. They've fallen on hard times, so it takes that uh, that Cinderella esque idea and transports it into a very modern story. Um, it's a nice story, honestly. Uh, it's about what you would expect. Uh, about uh, Isla Fisher plays uh, a single mom who has basically given up on happily ever after. And the interesting thing about this story is it it sort of delivers the message, a twofold message, that maybe happily ever after isn't what we should strive for. Maybe it's more about being happy in the moment. So I think there really is a focus on contentment here, and it broadens the idea of finding love from um, finding love just in a romantic relationship to finding love in all of our important relationships, whether that's family and friends, that sort of thing. Um, There is a small nod to same-sex relationships, which we're getting in virtually everything these days. But I think on balance, it's it's deconstructing the romantic idea of happily ever after actually in a healthy way. So some fun stuff here. There's a little bit of of misuses of God's name. There's some alcohol content, probably not a movie you want to watch with your seven-year-old. But, you know, I think for older tweens on up, um, this could be an interesting conversation starter about what are we pursuing in life and where do we find happiness?
0: All right. There are also reviews posted right now at PluggedIn.com of Christmas Chronicles 2, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, Black Beauty 2020. Which one of those do you want to tackle in in a minute?
2: Oh, boy. Let's talk about Black Beauty.
0: Okay. Is it a horse movie? It sounds like one.
2: It is. And I'll give you the history of Black Beauty, which I did not know. Well, please. Oh, you want me to do that right now? I thought we were yes! going to My bad. No, okay. let's
0: do it. Because when we <laughs> okay. come back, I want to have the crazy conversation about Ellen Page becoming Elliot. Oh, and boy. so that's going yeah. to be a whole pivot. So let's talk about yeah. A Beautiful Horse first.
2: So Black Beauty is a remake of the Black Beauty story you are probably familiar with. And here's what's interesting. No matter when you grew up in the last 150 years, you're probably familiar with this story. So, you know, I'm familiar with the 1979 version. I had forgotten they remade it in 1994. It was a movie in 1944, and it's based on a novel about uh, protesting the mistreatment of horses that came out in 1877. So this thing has been around a long time. Uh, This version stars Mackenzie Foy, who is an up-and-coming actress who's been in a couple different Disney movies uh, and some other movies as well, and she has lost both of her parents. She's living with uh, a, a relative who is a horse handler, I guess you would say, and he has this horse, Black Beauty, who's been captured as a wild Mustang out west and brought back east. It's, why is it out west, back east, up north, and down south? It's funny how we do that. Um, and Beauty is proud. Beauty doesn't want to be broken. But Mackenzie Foy's character is also broken. And this is a, a pretty nice movie about how this girl and this horse help each other heal. Uh, the horse, I'm sure you're wondering, is voiced by Kate Winslet. So there's definitely an anthropomorphic element here that I don't think was present in the other versions. Uh a couple of mild profanities, and I guess what we would categorize as horse peril, <laughs> um, but some, some terrific stuff here. And I think especially if you've got tween or teen girls, this is the kind of movie I think you could really enjoy together as a family. Agreed. All
0: right. When we come back from a very brief break, um, Adam Holtz is going to explain to us how Ellen Page has become Elliot. <clears throat> yep. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. Continuing my conversation with Adam Holtz from Focus on the Families Plugged In. Um, Adam, we want to deal with this subject matter. We want to do so in a way that, you know, honors the humanity of the individual. But this is a story that lots of people are talking about. And so we want to address it here. Who is Ellen Page? and, um, And how do you interpret this event where Ellen Page has become Elliot?
2: Uh, Ellen Page is an actress who came to the fore a number of years ago, probably, man, at least a decade ago. I don't have it right in front of me. In the movie Juno, where she plays a teen who gets uh, pregnant but decides to keep her baby, which was a very interesting film. Since then, she has um, come out as a lesbian, I believe, four or five years ago. And now she is, I guess you could say, in the modern parlance, taking the next step in her Sexual identity journey. And she uh, tweeted out or sent a, a, a message out and said, Hi, friends, I wanted to share with you that I am trans. My pronouns are he, they, and my name is Elliot. I feel lucky to be writing this, to be here, to have arrived at this place in my life. I feel overwhelming gratitude for the incredible people who have supported me along this journey. Uh, and then she goes on, um, You know, obviously the idea of transsexuality is one that has gained prominence and attention in our culture uh, as people who feel on the inside that they are the other gender than they are biologically, and they do various things to try to embrace that sense of who they feel like they are as opposed to, you know, what their biology says. Um, Obviously, our our culture, the mainstream culture has gone along with this idea uh, completely that that we have the power to mutate uh, our gender. Um, And and I think without talking so much about Ellen Page, but talking more about that idea, I think we have to think about it theologically from the perspective of being made in God's image, being made made male and female, and that both of those things are good expressions of who we are, but in a fallen world, our sexuality and our sense of identity and gender can be fragmented. Uh, and and I know that not everybody listening is necessarily going to agree with me here, but I think that what we're seeing with the transgender movement is, is a deep confusion about our ability to change something so fundamental because we don't feel like what we are. Um, and, and so I think Ellen Page is a, now Elliot Page is a very high profile example of that. Obviously, um, you know, Bruce Jenner was another one uh, in his transition to being what's recognized as a her. Uh, but I think another thing at the core of this is the idea that we are sovereign over our own bodies, that we are in control and that we can basically say something about them that, that isn't ultimately true. And again, we know Scripture says that that we don't belong to ourselves, that our bodies and our person ultimately belonged to Christ. So I think that's another theological filter for thinking about this. Obviously, she is excited about um, having some sort of congruency with what she feels on the inside and how she presents herself now as a he on the outside. But I, I think that as Christians, we have got to think really deeply and theologically about sexuality and about gender and about fallenness Because I think that all of those things are are coming into an intersection here.
0: Such confusion. And and it even becomes like almost impossible to talk about um, an individual, particularly with any historical reference. Right. So because this individual now claims to be... Um, something that they are clearly not, um, and clearly were not when they took on roles that were aligned with their biology, right? Um, so when, um, when Ellen Page was Ellen Page and was an actress, and uh, gave, you know, spoke at an event. Um, she was referred to as she. Well, now historically, we're supposed to go and we are supposed to look at those same um, clips and events and refer to that person who is playing that role, a a woman playing a woman. And we are now supposed to refer to that individual um, as if that person is not a female. Right. And so the the demand that I participate in the delusion is actually the part that is um, maybe the most difficult for me as a Christian, right. it's it's actually not hard for me to acknowledge and recognize that people are desperately broken and confused. Yes. Um, yep. That is actually not hard for me to. I mean, I get that. I, that happens in a myriad ways, in more ways than you and I would have uh, time or imagination to number. Right. But the the demand that I participate in the delusion. Um, is, I think, for the Christian in the culture today, the really hard part. Um, right. I I now must call this person by um, a, a masculine name and refer to this individual with male pronouns um, or non-gender specific pronouns like they um, right. if I am going to speak in such a way that is is acknowledged as publicly appropriate. And you, you, right. you hear in my effort how hard it is. No, it's tortured. The whole thing yeah, is tortured. It's tortured. And the whole thing. The is
2: English tortured. major in me rebels against using a plural pronoun for a singular individual. I mean, right. <laughs> right. even apart from theological considerations, because you don't. It, it's confusing. Even mm-hmm. as there's an expression, I think of of confusion. We don't even have the language to talk about what's going on here without torturing our language, too, uh, which is a, obviously a, a lesser consideration than the, than the core issues here. Um, I, I want to say one other thing here, if I can. You know, I think mm-hmm. that really since the the sexual revolution in the 1960s, our culture has bought the lie that we can find ultimate fulfillment in our sexuality and in our sexual identity. And I think the trans movement is Symptomatic of that it is an outworking of that it is a more extreme version, but it's just further along the continuum that was launched when we divorced sexuality and sexual expression from god's intent for it as a good and beautiful thing in the context of a covenant relationship of marriage um, and and when we decoupled those things, we opened pandora 's box mm-hmm. um, but I, I think the thing that's interesting is how In these cases, someone's sexual identity becomes their primary identity. Uh, And I actually don't think as important as gender is and as important as being male and female are, that those elements of our personhood are are as important as the culture says they are. And what I mean by that was our sexuality was never designed by God to be the totality of our person, you know? It's Mm -hmm. one important component. But it's hardly the only thing. And I think that's the other thing that happens with a story like this is it reinforces this idea that the most important thing in life is sexuality and gender. And I think that's a a different lie than some of the other lies that are in play here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, Adam Holt, thank you so much. Um, you guys can check out what Adam and others are writing at PluggedIn.com. Uh, we appreciate, appreciate your, the cultural conversations that we get to have with you. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Carmen. Happy Advent. All right, yeah, friends, we will be uh, right back after Breakpoint. The Bible was written um, by particular people of a particular cultural context. We, however, read the Bible from a very different time and a distance, not only of, uh, of, ge- of time, but geography. And we read it in ways that are very, very individualistic. And so next up, I'm going to have a conversation about the way we misread Scripture because of the eyes through which we see it, these individualist eyes. My conversation uh, partner, is going to be the author of Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. His name is, isn't that terrible, Randy Richards. I know. I I was going to get there eventually. I was finding it in my notes. His name is Randy Richards, and he's up next. We'll be right back.
1: My dad, a man of few words, told my brother and me, Boys, Christmas is about Jesus. This is Max Locato. In one of those bedtime, booktime moments, somewhere between the fairy tales and the monkey with the lunch pail, I thought about what Dad had said, and I began asking the Christmas questions, and I've been asking them ever since. God knows what it's like to be a human. and When we talk to him about deadlines or tough times, he understands. He's been there. He's been here. Because of Bethlehem, we have a friend in Jesus. Christmas begins what Easter celebrates. The child in the cradle became the king on the cross. And he doesn't tell us, clean up before you come in. He offers, come in and I'll clean you up. It's not our grip on him that matters, but his grip on us. And his grip is sure. This is Max Locato, Because of Bethlehem.
0: All right, when Westerners, like most of us, uh, read the Bible, we do so through a lens, through a worldview that is very individualistic. Um, That means there is a lot that we are missing and a lot that we misinterpret and misunderstand to help us uh, clarify our thinking and read the scriptures more accurately. We are Uh, We are talking today with Randy Richards, among other things, the author of Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. Randy, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
3: Good morning, Carmen. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. Um, Let's back up and let's talk about um, the expectations that an author um, has of the reader, because I think that if we start there, we might be able to help people understand how we're misreading much of the Bible.
3: Well, Carmen, you you can't start a story by telling everything that everyone might ever want to know about a story. They just assume certain shared information between the listener and the speaker.
0: Right. And so, um let's say the writer of the story of that I think of as the story of Joseph, which you might argue is not actually the story of Joseph, um you might argue it is the story of of whom and why would you argue that? So like, let's just use one story, like the story of jo- Joseph to, um, to unpack this, because I think that that approach is gonna help people see what you're talking about.
3: Uh, thank you, Carmen, it's a great story. You know, it's, it's, it's just one of the, my favorite stories in the Bible, Joseph and his coat of many colors that I learned as a child. Uh, Joseph, you know, there's so much in the story that just goes without being said. Usually the most important things in a culture go without being said. So they'll start out the very first story about Joseph is him basically ratting on his brothers to his father. Well, that's supposed to set a tone and set a context for us, but I usually just skim right over that. Uh, the story of Joseph, for me, was always, in a sense, the American success story. The boy in the country has to leave the country. He goes to the big city, overcomes adversity, and finally makes it big. And, you know, well, that's the American success story. It's not the story of Joseph.
0: And the story of Joseph is really uh, the story of a father who didn't do some of the things that uh, that culturally he should have done, um, and then it's that ultimately the Mediterranean reader or the person reading with Mediterranean eyes sees a, uh, a failure of the patriarch here. Um, and ultimately, then the climax of the story is the reconciliation of the brothers and the father, the, the reconciliation of the family system, um, which is just not what we see as the climax often of the story of Joseph.
3: So well said, Carmen. For me, the story ends when Joseph is promoted to number two in Egypt. Ta-da! And the rest of the story is just epilogue, but it's actually halfway through the story. The rest is all these things, cups and grain, and, and you know, it, it didn't really make sense to me. The way it was driven home to me was in telling this story, the first time the brothers have conflict, one of my Middle Eastern friends stood up, looked around at his friends, and said, where is Jacob And I thought, well, I don't know. He finished a couple chapters back in the Bible. He was done as far as I knew in the story. And they said, of course, brothers don't get along. That's part of growing up. It's a father's job to negotiate challenges between brothers.
0: I think the first time that I I ever started thinking about um, what you are talking about in this book um, is when I met Ken Bailey and he talked about um, the Mediterranean eyes. And you you highlight that exact same um, approach to this conversation. There's just so much that we miss because of the eyes through which we are reading the Bible. Um, can you can you kind of give us a diagnosis of the problem? Like be the optometrist who says you know the lens through which you are looking is is faulty for these reasons, um, and help us see the lens through which Mediterranean people would um, would hear these stories?
3: Well, Carmen, first, uh, I would never want to bash the West. God has used the Western church in powerful, powerful ways. Um, Someone needs to write a book misreading the uh, scripture with Eastern eyes because (laughs) they do it as well. You know, I, I can't write it. Um, So it's not that we're doing something unique. Everyone reads scripture through their cultural eyes. We can't help it. It's how we were raised. We learned it as four, five, six-year-olds long before we ever uh, learned common sense and long before we ever became a believer. And so it's just part of trying to sort out our cultural understandings from a biblical worldview. The old-timey word for that, by the way, is discipleship.
0: (laughs) Right, which is um, sorely lacking and often not um, not done with any sort of historical perspective whatsoever. I mean, if we get to the place where um, evangelism is all about me and Jesus, then discipleship is all about me and Jesus. And I completely uh, miss that it is about me as a part of a body of people, um, that it is me as a participant in a kingdom of people. Um, and so talk about the collectivist and as, as soon as we say that word people are going to send all kinds of um, <laughs> communist manifestos to me so let let let's let's use the word as it is appropriately understood in the conversation about a biblical worldview um in terms of sure. those who wrote the scriptures yep
3: uh, we are individualists. It's uh, The U.S. and the U.K. are by far the most individualistic countries in the world. I think in terms of me, if you had asked me to introduce myself, I would give my name and then immediately describe the most unique things about me, which are often the least important things. Um, it's, it's about identity and values and collectivists, which is just the opposite of an individualist. Collectivists are most of the world, and they define themselves differently. But you had asked a moment ago, about you know what would be an, an, an illustration of these things you know the coat of many colors you know we think of it's like he got a nicer Christmas gift than the other brothers and hmm. what went without being said was Joseph was the oldest son now all of your Bible uh, scholars in your audience will say no he wasn't no he wasn't he was the oldest son of the other wife and so the coat indicated Joseph. And that wife and that lineage was going to be the official inheritors. And so that means the other brothers are out unless Joseph is going to take care of them. All that would be.
0: Yeah. And so that gets us into this conversation about kinship and then patronage. Um, and then brokerage. And so we're going to talk about those concepts here in just a moment. I'm talking with Randy Richards. He is the author of Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. And yes, I have copies to give away. If you are interested in entering the drawing, go ahead and text the word book to eight seven seven We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Randy Richards, we're talking about his newest book, Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. The first part of the book uh, talks about the social structures of the biblical world and deals with kinship, patronage, and brokerage. The second part of the book talks about social tools, enforcing and reinforcing our values. And this is the portion of the book um, about honor, shame, and boundaries. Um, Randy, I'd love to have you unpack a little bit of the honor-shame conversation, because I do think that it is one that people are primed um, primed to hear, um, particularly as we, we live in a much more globalized um, world, and there are a lot of people who operate out of an honor-shame um, cultural heritage um, or social structure, and we in the West do not really understand it.
3: That is true. Uh, in in a collectivist society, the opposite of ours, uh, there are three elephants in the room always, always, and usually we don't even see them. They're kinship, patronage, and brokerage or mediation. We We view those things negatively, by the way. We call it nepotism, patronage is already a negative term, and the middleman, which we want to get rid of. And for them, these are all the things you should be pursuing. So these are the values. We have other values in our culture, newness, efficiency, youth, those kinds of things, and they go without being said. And then every culture has tools to enforce, reinforce, and maintain their values. In our in our culture, we use uh, folk stories. You know, we use the tortoise and the hare and Cinderella and all of those stories to teach and enforce our values. Um, we also use guilt. Get my, oh, my grandmother was a pro, Carmen, at using guilt to teach and enforce uh, values. Collectivists use honor, shame, and boundaries.
0: Okay, and so talk about that. I mean, I, right. I, I just think that it just helps for you to unpack it for us.
3: All right, so— uh, the, heart, the most important things in a culture go without being said, and they're usually very, very difficult to define. And so honor is basically my, my value, how I'm seen in the eyes of the people that matter to me, my community. And so honor, we sort of understand. Shame, we completely mess up. The only way we use shame in our culture is the misuse of shame. And so we tend to think shame and shaming is always bad. Now that's a problem because God shames people, Jesus shames people, and Paul shames people. We think, oh my goodness, he shouldn't be doing that. Well, actually, shaming is a biblical virtue, the misuse of shame is a tragedy. And it can do enormous damage. And in our culture, all we've ever seen is the misuse. The purpose of shame is to warn someone, you're about to cross outside the boundaries. You're about to to leave the group. You're you're crossing the line out there. And the purpose is to draw the person back to restore. The misuse of shame pushes people away. And that's what we see in our culture. Um, Shaming is used to push people away. Well, that's the misuse of shame. Um and then finally found well I love boundaries that. And I, I okay. Yeah, you want I to go just, back no, to shame?
0: Well, I just want to be sure that people don't miss that that um because I think that immediately when we hear the word shame or uh, I mean if we're going to say God shames people, Jesus shames people, Paul shames people, um, we have to understand what is righteously meant by that term. And I love the image that you just offered up. I mean, if there is a boundary line, if there's a fence line for the community of what is Um, you know, what is safe, what is um, what fits here, what works here to uh, to the benefit of each and everyone, um, then as you approach that boundary line, it's the responsibility of all of us to say, don't go there. I think about the dolphins of the Red Sea, right? They were like the don't go there announcers. They weren't shaming the fish who were, you know, couldn't see the boundary and the edge and therefore just swam out into oxygenated air that they couldn't, you know, where they couldn't swim anymore. Right. The dolphins are like the warning ones, but they're not they're shaming in a positive way. And so I I think that um, if we can help people see that, you can see that um, it's not mean to tell people where the cliff is. It's actually mean not to.
3: It is. um, Our culture used to do it better. My grandmother used the term correctly. Our culture today really messes up. We can say something is shameful and shameless, and we mean the same thing. Well, how can full and less mean the same thing? But Mm. my grandmother one time talked about my friend. She said he has no shame. Well, the idea of shame, the the actual meaning of shame is that I know the proper way to act in a situation. And so my friend who had no shame was demonstrating he didn't know the proper way to act. He was shameless, my grandmother would say
0: all right i'm I'm making a note of that um, because I think that's really important um let's uh let's talk about um how much you know about this because of being a practitioner of missiology. Like, right, you have been a missionary, you continue to lead mission efforts, you educate in the area of missions. Um, how is all of this, a, a right and righteous understanding of Scripture and a right reading of it, how is that related to the Great Commission of the Church um, to, you know, to share the gospel?
3: Carmen, we— uh I started out by saying we would never want to imply that there's something wrong with the West. We all read through a lens. The goal is to read better. We want to read scripture better. So when I'm aware of the biases that I bring, when, when I become aware that I'm squeezing scripture into my own cultural mold, mold, then it can help me to read scripture better. And I want to read scripture better so I can follow Jesus better. That's ultimately the goal.
0: And I'm going to follow him into the world that he so loves and with the goal of of drawing people unto him, um, hopefully through a winsome witness that is uh, aligned with the word of God in such a way that, you know, like people aren't rejecting the Bible or rejecting Christ because I am misrepresenting either one.
3: Carmen, I went 12,000 miles to the other side of the world, to a remote island between Borneo and New Guinea. Your readers um, just have to cross the street to meet a global community. And Mm -hmm. so there are collectivists in their office, in their church, and in their neighborhood. And so understanding them better, understanding collectivists better, and understanding ourselves better as individualists will help us to talk about Jesus in a more winsome way.
0: I love that. Randy Richards, author of Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes, I do have copies to share with you from the publisher. If you are interested in entering the drawing, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Randy, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the book. Thank you for um, what you do in teaching in this area each and every day.
3: My pleasure. Thank you, Carmen.
0: It was a joy. We'll be right back. All right, um, Paul. I'm going to do a little um, public service announcement. Are you ready?
3: Uh, go for it.
0: Go for Your Thanksgiving leftovers are officially not good anymore. Oh. Seven Seven days in the fridge is the outer max limit, pretty much for anything. It's time. It needs to be on the push list today. If it's a leftover from Thanksgiving, which was now a full seven days ago, it's um, <clears throat> it's time to either eat it or let it go. Yeah.
1: So That's my... It's either leftovers yeah. tonight or it's in the garbage.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, or the dog. I don't know. If you have one, they would eat it. Well, there um, you go. So, um, so what are you doing with your leftovers? I made turkey tetrazzini last night with the last bits of turkey and peas that were available. What are you doing with your leftovers? I um, I might need to know the answer to that question. If you have leftover pie, I don't know. I feel like maybe pie is this breaches. We, we finished that up it, last night. Surely it couldn't. There still couldn't be. Oh, it's still good. Yeah. yeah. No, it's still good. Definitely. All right. Hey, we love you. We appreciate you joining us each and every day for Mornings with Carmen. Paul and I love what we do. We are buoyed by your prayers. Um, We are grateful for your presence with us. Um, We acknowledge um, with deepest gratitude what a privilege it is to get to do what we do each and every day. And you make it our joy. So thank you for sharing this time with us. Um, You can grab the podcast later and share it with someone else at MyFaithRadio.com. Tons of great resources there. Sign up um, for our Advent reading that we're doing together and check out the information about Susie's live stream event coming this Sunday night, uh, particularly if you're having a challenge with insomnia or, you know, sleep deprivation, which might be all of us right now. Uh, So all kinds of great stuff there to check out. And we're going to catch up with you on Monday morning when we're going to be in the midst of what we call winter share. And we're really looking forward to to capping off the year with you. Have a great weekend and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen Laburge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app.